All right, well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here. <laughs> we are going to be, we're on the back end of the series that we've been in, in some, for some months now, and uh, living a life of spiritual renewal. And really, this sermon is going to be kind of like a capstone sermon in a way. We'll be addressing, ultimately, like, why do we want to be living lives of just continual spiritual renewal? Not, not lives of complacency before God, but a striving to know him and to be renewed in him on a regular, daily, weekly, monthly basis. What's, what ultimately is, is the reason why? And there's many ways you could potentially answer that question, but we're going to look at today is a passage out of 1 Thessalonians 4 when Paul addresses this church and he asks them, he says, that they need to live a life pleasing to God. A life pleasing to God. And we're going to dive in to what exactly it means to live a life pleasing to God. And so beginning at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, which should be some verses behind you, let's just jump right in to the text. And we have a lot of things to, to, to discuss this morning. So jumping into chapter 4 here, as he's talking, this is a church that was in the town of Thessalonica, or maybe Nica, I think. It's um, uh, in the ancient Roman Empire. This is kind of a, a Greek city. And so he's, he's speaking with them and he says, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. So in this first verse, Paul, he uses a pretty formal word for instruction. So almost like, think kind of like a classroom setting, a pretty formal setting to where Paul actually gave instruction on what it means to live a life pleasing to God. And he actually encouraged him, he says, keep doing this because you, you are already doing it. But I just want to ask some questions before we move on with the idea of pleasing God. Um, I don't know, I know many of you, and you have various kind of streams potentially of Christianity that you were exposed to early in your life. Maybe Christianity is kind of new. Maybe religion is kind of new. Um, there's many different stories here in this room. But the fact is that, especially in the, in the, in the Northeast, um, if you hear the word pleasing, like I want to, you know, live a life pleasing to God, there may be an immediate kind of response of like, of, of like religious shame feeling, you know? It's like, oh, well, I definitely don't do that. I know I should. And so here we go, just to tell me how awful I am. And this is one of those kinds of sermons, right? Because a lot of, you know, religious kind of talk gets these verses that should, this is God's word, this is the inspired scriptures, when it says to please God, this is there. Like it's, we, we can't ignore this, but it, these are phrases that have been often been abused in the name of kind of, you know, religion or, or um, uh, power structures in religion that kind of, you know, whack people over the head with this as a hammer instead of a surgical tool to kind of, you know, usher in the very words of God into our heart, oftentimes people get verses like this and says, you know, live a life pleasing to God and you aren't, so start doing it, you know, and kind of whack them on the head. This is not what we're going to be looking at. There's really two, two ways to think about pleasing God. Now, religion, the form of this would be um, to please God in order to try to, 
you know, almost like, like flattery. This, this word pleasing um, is used elsewhere in the New Testament many times. And, and um, th- there's a pretty, it's a pretty dark story um, in, in the Gospel of Mark where um, Herod, his, uh, his niece was invited to essentially dance before him and his, you know, um, companions. And um, you can just imagine what kind of dancing was happening. And it was, it pleased him, it said. It was a way that kind of like manipulation was going on, okay? Herod was pleased about what was going on. His companions were pleased about what was going on. And so the response was, whatever you want, you know, you get because you were pleasing for us. That's like pleasing for flattery, pleasing to get something, pleasing to manipulate. Now, a lot of religious teaching may, may kind of teach that, you know, if you make God happy, X, Y, Z might come from it. You know, you might get this or get that. Um, th- but that's not, biblically speaking, what it means to please God. Because we are in relationship with him through his son Jesus by his spirit. And all throughout the scriptures, even early on, everything between us and God was based on love. In Deuteronomy 6, early on in scripture, it says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And even Deuteronomy 8, two chapters later, when he's talking to his people, he said, look, I chose you to be my people. And the truth is, this is my paraphrase, the Nelms translation, right? The truth is, you guys were nobody special. Of all the peoples of the earth, there was nothing remarkable about you. There wasn't. I chose you because I love you. I chose you because I love you. And so just like any kind of marriage or friendship, right? Like my wife, I I should serve her to please her, not to say, okay, now, Alex, now that I did that, it's it's my turn for you to do this for me. Because then she's going to see right through that. Have that ever happened to you before when somebody like was helping you with something and suddenly you get that kind of feeling like, this person wants something for me. This is why they're being so nice. Has that ever happened to you, Right? That's not really the kind of friends or the kind of marriage that, that would really be flourishing, right? If, if I'm, you know, constantly having to serve my wife in order for her to serve me, and that's what... No, I, I serve her, and when I see her please, it pleases me because I love her. And I don't get anything out of it. I serve because I love her. And this is the, base, the basis, the biblical basis that we see from God himself on when we talk about living a life to please God... It begins first with loving him. We live this life to please him on the foundation of love. You guys tracking so far? You're awake on this rainy July day? Secondly, a life pleasing to God is a life lived by the authority of Jesus. That's another word in modern times that we don't like, authority, you know. You can't have authority over me. Let's look what happens in verse, the other half of verse 1 and verse 2. Now we ask you, says Paul to this church, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So he didn't just ask them. He urged them. Like, the, the, the words here are pretty, like, strong words. Like, he was, in a way, like, pleading. Like, we, we begged you. We implored you. 
in the Lord Jesus to live this life more and more and more because you know the instructions we gave you. They weren't just our instructions, right? They were given to you by the very authority of Jesus Christ because they were his teachings, they were his instructions, and he has the authority. Now I want to wrestle with the idea of authority when it comes to this conversation. And we're going to touch on this. Um, We're going to go to verse 3, but just kind of put a pin in that authority conversation. Because again, in our cultural modern times today, um, we don't like to talk about any authority imposed on us from the outside. So we're going to dive into that. As you see in verse 3, this life pleasing to God, what does it look like? What does God's will look like for this? Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. It's a Christianese word. You don't turn on, you know, the news and hear somebody use the word sanctified. Um, doesn't pop up in your Twitter feed often, right? It's in the church. So it's a churchy word, okay? But what does it mean? The best way I can describe it, I think, just to give a, a, some kind of an analogy here. When we go grocery shopping, you know, I used to do the grocery shopping. She kind of took over again recently. But I would get a list, and it's a long list because we have a, big family. So a lot of stuff. And every item on that list had a purpose. Okay. Like if I came home with an extra thing, Alex would look and be like, that wasn't on the list. Why did you get it? There's no plan for that. That's a waste, you know? And we kind of have to think this way truthfully, because if we didn't, our kitchen would be just overflow with, like there'd be no room for anything right? Because we have just, we have a lot of kids. And so we have to really think through what goes in the kitchen, and we strive for that kind of minimalist life as well. And so, you know, this works until I get adventurous with, I like, I like making breakfast casseroles, you know? Any men that like love the breakfast thing are really good at it. I'm really good, I'm not really that best good at cooking, but I can kill it at breakfast casseroles, man. Like, sausage, egg, and cheese, it's great, it's awesome. But uh, this is a couple months ago um, when I started really doing this most Saturday mornings. You know, there was no plan for the egg casserole. There wasn't. And so I made the casserole. It was great. Turns out that we didn't have eggs Monday morning for regular breakfast because those eggs had a purpose and it was not the casserole. In other words, to use this, this sanctified word appropriately, those eggs were set apart for something specific. They were sanctified, if you will. <laughs> it works. You guys tracking? I think this works. They were set apart for a specific purpose. And I tried to use them for something else, and turns out we didn't have eggs on Monday morning. Now, that's really kind of the meaning of the word is set apart. You were set apart for a reason before God. He grabbed you and he set you apart. But this word can also be translated as holy, as unique. He set you apart for holiness, set you apart to be unique amongst um, everyone else in this world. So you and I, we need to understand that we were set apart, okay, through the blood of Jesus. It begins understanding this. It begins with the, the purchasing aspect. How did he set us apart as his people? Well, it began when we were purchased through his blood. He redeemed you through the blood of Christ. 
First uh, Corinthians six nineteen through twenty. Um, another words, other words from Paul. He says, "Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own; you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body." First Peter one seventeen through twenty one says, "If you address the Father." As Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Verse 18, here we go. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold for your futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was known, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers are God, and God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So your faith and hope are in God. The sanctification process begins through the work of Jesus as he died for us, and then we were redeemed and purchased by him, by his blood. Now, this is all very fascinating to think about, right? This idea of being purchased by God in order to be set apart, of, of belonging to God, of being redeemed by him, because why did Christ die for, for our sins? We were redeemed by him from sin and death itself. We were redeemed for sanctification, for holiness, to be set apart for God. And this is very much against any kind of, kind of cultural conversations we have in 2023 because things like bodily autonomy or even things like sexual freedom or taking your life and making it your own like, this is the stuff of kind of the modern zeitgeist, right? This is a, the, the, the how we perceive as human beings today. That, that we ultimately, um, in, instead of bowing to the authority of God, we are trying to take the ultimate authority that belongs to God, take God out of the picture, take that authority for ourselves. That's what's happening in modern times. We're trying to take God out of the picture but keep some of the things that still belong to him and try to just take it for our own. But in scripture, it says, no, 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 no. You belong to him. You were purchased by him and he has set you apart to live a life pleasing to him. Uh, in our bulletins, we have the New City Catechism that's, that's there every week. And um, in, our fa- <clears throat> in our family, we've memorized... Uh, many of them, but the very first question kind of speaks into this. The very first question, question number one, what is our only hope in life and death? That you are not your own, but belong to God. That's hope that you are not your own. Modern thought would say, no, 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 you are your own. And as Christians, we say, no, 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 no. There's actually so much hope wrapped up in the reality that I am not my own. We've walked through this for, for months, right, about cultivating this life to be, to be closer to God, to seek to be filled with his spirit as we walk and talk and sleep and eat. And so the, the idea of belonging to God, okay, um, it, 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 what we need is to, uh, in, in cultivating this is the first step here. We're going to go kind of on a lengthy part here in the middle of the sermon here. To, to know that we belong to God and to know that this is a hopeful message um, I can describe it to you all day long and tell you words, you know, about God in order to say it's a good thing that you belong to God, look what he's done for us. But there's a reality of the work of the Spirit 
that, that is one of, of revealing this to us. And so we're going to talk about this, this holy life that we're called to live, this pleasing life. We, we laid out some, some theological truths here. But the reality is, f- for us to pursue holiness, like you, the only way to do it is not to say, okay, if I want to be, you know, uh, uh, live this life pleasing to God, I need to work harder or try harder. That's not step one. Step one is that you have a revelation of who God truly is. That's really going to be step one in this process. That you have a revelation of who God truly is. Because the truth is, like, if you see who he is, and the Spirit reveals this to you, the reality is, you're going to be horrified by your sin. You're going to be horrified by your sin. If you see the glory and the majesty of God, you're going to immediately be like, whoa, I am so unclean. I have never before seen such power and glory and beauty and purity and holiness. In my life, I've never even imagined this even exists, and I've seen the Lord, and, and, and now I know just how unclean and, and sinful I am. It's hard to even like go down this path because I've been reading a lot in psychological circles about this idea of media fatigue. Because there's some, there's some feeling things that, that go into this. Like, you have to kind of almost experience this as, as the Spirit of God reveals this to you. We'll read that out of Ephesians in a moment. But in modern times, like, I, I think our, our, our um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like, our, our senses can be kind of numb because of um, uh, what these psychologists are calling, you know, media fatigue. We're, we're almost so overwhelmed by just um, uh, exposure of information. You know, scary things or happy things or this or that. We're so just overwhelmed by it that they've been doing a lot of research of people, like, we're becoming kind of numb inside. To even things that should just, like, be horrible. We're like, oh, yeah, well, I don't know. I've, I've seen that before. You know, we hear statistics and horrible events around the world, and it's just like, oh, nothing new. Moving on. You guys understand what I'm trying to say? And so as we're looking at this conversation of of knowing who God is, like we have to kind of try to push against the grain here and soften our hearts and invite God through his spirit to soften our hearts. To say, Lord, like we, we, we want to bask ourselves in you in order to see you and see your holiness because we know that what you have done for us. We know that you have set us apart to live this life pleasing to you. But Lord, I, I need to see you. I need to, to know you. Last week we talked about how God often whispers to us when he communicates. And if, you're, if your senses aren't softened and quiet to hear him, you'll miss him as he pursues you, Right? And so there's a, um, there's a verse here in Ephesians 1, verse 17. I want you to hear this. This is Paul's prayer. I keep asking that the God of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that he may give you the spirit that can reveal to you who he is. Why? So that you may know him better. That you may know him better. I didn't know how else to talk about this life of holiness that we're called to live, this life of being sanctified, because my thought process was like, I, you know, holiness is on a conversation in our culture today. Um, it sounds like a sermon that might 
be more suited for like 1765 or whatever and not 2023? Like, are we really going to talk about this kind of conversation in modern times? And I didn't want to just give you elaborate words. Like, I want to, I want to stop here for a moment. I'm going to read 11 verses. Because the best way for all of us to catch a glimpse of, of, this, of this needed life that we're called to live of holiness before God is to catch a glimpse of the holiness of God himself. And so what I want to do is, I want to do this. Just, I'm going to read out of Revelation chapter 4. Okay, knowing that God's Spirit can reveal this to us, knowing that God's Spirit wants to reveal who God is to us, I'm going to ask us to, um, if you want to close your eyes, I didn't put this on the screen behind me on purpose, because I'm going to read this scene out of the throne room in Revelation 4, because the quickest path to holiness is to see and catch a glimpse of the very power and glory of God himself. And so as I read this, I want to encourage you to close your eyes. Um, if you can look up or look around and not be distracted and just have your heart set saying, Lord, like, show me yourself. Like, this vision that John got in Revelation 4, I pray as I read this, it can become your vision. All right? So let's, let's do this together. I'm going to read this aloud slowly. And may, may this vision be yours. May the Spirit of God just reveal the glory of God to you this morning. Revelation 4. After this, I looked... And you have to use your imagination. Picture this in your mind. And may God just show himself to you this morning. As I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. I will show you what must must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne, 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in and front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Church, I pray such visions awaken us to God's holiness that we may be awakened to God's own will that we be holy. For when God's brightness shines into our darkness, we are exposed like a flashlight shining on us in a dark room. I want us to say this together, okay? If we can just imagine that our our, our words in the sanctuary are echoing the words of heaven that we just read. Say it with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Friends, expose yourself to the holiness of God. And the byproduct will be what happened to Isaiah when he stood before God and he saw him seated on this throne with the glass in front of him and Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. But when you expose yourself to the holiness of God and your lack of holiness is exposed, something else gets exposed. And it is the mercy of God. It is the mercy of God that surfaces Because after Isaiah said that, what happened? An angel came and put a hot coal on his lips and said, you are purified, you are clean right now. His mercy surfaces. Because even in the darkest of moments, even in the darkest of our actions, we don't need to crawl back to God in shame, scared to look at him. But because of Jesus Christ, we can stand up and we can run back to our Father. Without fear, without shame, We can run back knowing that he will once again embrace us, once again fill us with his spirit. We may chase after him again in this life as we're seeking to please him in this life. This is exactly what happened to David after his egregious sin. You can read about it with Bathsheba. He he writes Psalm 51. We'll just read three verses of this. I want you to pay attention to, to his, he was exposed to his own sin. He realized what he had done was horrible and it wrecked a family. It cost somebody their life and it even led to the death of his own child. And listen to how David responds to God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He starts saying, have mercy on me, O God. He says that knowing that God is a merciful God. And that's what led him to pen such a beautiful and difficult psalm is Psalm 51. David truly understood God. God was truly revealed to David because he knew God as love and therefore he knew God as a merciful 
God. When is the last time you truly experienced his love? These are all pathways to holiness in our life, friends. These are all the pathways that we need to learn to, to travel often in a cyclical way. If we are to have a hunger for holiness, right? It's not trying hard. It's first experiencing the love of God and his mercy. When is the last time? That you truly experienced the love of God in your life. When you experience God's love and you become aware of his mercy, you can say things like, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins, says David. And in this process, he says something interesting. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We need to be aware of our sin, friends. When we see God, see his holiness, and our sin is exposed, yes, his mercy is exposed, we have to find an awareness of our sin and not become so numb to it. We cannot become numb to our sin. God's mercy is not a license. Read Romans chapter 6, we see this. God's mercy is not a license to keep on sinning. It's not how this mercy works from God. When you get a glimpse of God and who he truly is, and your sin flashes before your eyes, and you appeal to the mercy of God, we, we need to cast our eyes once again to realize the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then in view of God's mercy, that we are accepted when we do not and ever do, would not ever have deserved to be accepted But only through Christ are we accepted. That Christ, the Son of God, the very author of life, that he died. The author of life died the death that I should have died. And all the sin within, he has paid for by his blood. That there is now only mercy, abundant mercy given to me. And even as my sin is ever before me, the cross of Jesus speaks a better word. The cross of Jesus speaks a better word. It is the death of Christ that says, your sin was ever before me on the cross. So now it does not have to be ever before you. This is why Paul could say, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. In view of all that good news that we just shared, Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Give yourself over to a life that is pleasing to God in view of the mercy of God. It's not try harder to be holy. It's look at God's holiness. Look at the good news of Jesus. Look at the grace that we receive. His love that he ushers out on us. And what happens is we, we will, our palate for sin begin, it begins changing, Right? We start realizing the, the abundant life that he has to offer us. And we start saying, I, I don't, even though my heart is continually inclined to sin, to do these things, I know that are, that are destructive. Even though they're, they're inclined to do that, this pathway of living a life pleasing to God begins like training your, your tongue to not enjoy the, you know, the Big Macs of, of sin and the broccoli of the abundant life. Does that work? I think that works, right? Because some of that food just tastes great. Those first few bites where you know, like, this is so horrible, like what I'm eating right now. But man, it tastes good, right? Man, it tastes good. So the question is, if this is God's will that you are sanctified, and we're going through all these questions this morning, as we talk about the need 
to be aware of our sin and to repent of it and to be renewed in him and to develop a, a, a taste for his holiness that is stronger for a taste for our own sin. The question that also surfaces now is, when is the last time you were broken over your own sin? I mean broken over your own sin. Or have you allowed destructive patterns of living to simply become kind of the norm? I mean, the ease of access to so many destructive things in 2023, it it doesn't compare to any other period in history. And the potential to numb our heart towards these paths of destructions is so easy and it's so convenient today. And our heart becomes no longer sensitive to it. We can allow a thick callous membrane to kind of like form around our heart and our conscience just continually gets numb to it. When is the last time you were broken over your own sin? How can you now do the work of trying to become sensitive to these things? Maybe a first step is to try to empty out your brain of a lot of the the, the noise of our day and age. And just sit with others, even in this room. Engage in conversation about Jesus, about his holiness. Pray, saying, Lord, reveal to us your holiness. Like the spirit of wisdom and revelation, you know, pour into our hearts your love. Lord, like, let, let, like reveal yourself to us. Engage, you know, your neighbors and, and with acts of love and, and grace and mercy and tell them the good news of Jesus and engage in all these spiritual practices that we've been talking about and block out just all the noise of this world that can just like consume our minds and just distract us and give us anxiety and all these things partake in the things of God and I'm telling you what happens is you will become more and more sensitive to him the spirit will say yes I can use this I I, I, I want to fill you and you're allowing me to fill you I'm going to keep softening your heart to the very things that I have for you the very words I'm going to speak to you and the very things that I want you to do That's what we need to pursue. That's how we become sensitive to these things. And yes, you will become more sensitive to your own sin in the process. This whole process kind of, um, to kind of put a little bow tie on this. There's an exchange that we're pursuing here. As we pursue the righteousness of a life pleasing with God, this is in the Christian use the word righteousness. We don't hear that often, right? As we pursue holiness, as we pursue righteousness, a foundational block that we need to, to, to grasp onto as we see our sin is to know that, yes, our sin has been paid for. And that's a huge thing to understand, this life pleasing to God. But you need to really truly embrace that, yes, you are forgiven in Christ. All the feelings of not measuring up and feelings of shame and et cetera, we've, we've already covered that. It's all gone away. But there's something else that, that happens in our life that, you know, the, the righteousness that we're pursuing, this right, a life of rightness, if you want to say it that way. There's an there's a important respect that when you become a Christian, that rightness, the righteousness that you need you already have. I want to explain this. What do you mean you already have? Well, Jesus never sinned. He was only righteous. And Peter talks about how through his suffering and temptations, how he never gave in to those things. He became perfect. He proved himself to be perfect 
at his death because he never gave in to those things and he lived a perfectly righteous life that was in the will of God. The will of God was perfectly accomplished in Christ and he was made perfect through such obedience. And his credit of righteousness, his, his life of rightness, scripture is clear, when you first believe in Christ and the struggle of living his life pleasing to him, like you are made righteous through his rightness. You were made righteous through his righteousness. Because on the cross, there was what um, theologians have called the great exchange. The great exchange took place. Our sin became his sin, as if it belonged to him. And when payment was complete for it, all of his own righteousness or rightness, it was handed over to us, as if it belonged to us. The great exchange. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. As we return to our passage in Thessalonians, it says to be holy and set apart, sanctified, like the egg carton, set apart. For that is God's will for you. That's what he desires for you, this holy life. This is a quote from Martin Luther that kind of really talks about this great exchange. He says, therefore, my dear brothers, learn Christ and him crucified. Okay, I keep pointing you back to to visions of the glory of God and the good news of Jesus on the cross because that is the first step to, to find this holy life. You have to learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to pray to him and despairing of yourself say, you, Lord Jesus, are my righteousness, but I am your sin. He never sinned, but our sin became his. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and have given to me what is yours. You have taken upon yourself what you were not and have given to me what I was not. What that means is when God sees you, right, in your sinful state, even from day one, he puts on these Jesus glasses and he says, all the work that my son has done is now, it's as if it's yours and I love you and you can always come back to me because of what Christ has done for you. All of this means, friends, to return to the authority piece. There's many multiple, multiple facets here of our sermon today that you do not belong to yourself any longer. And the life that God has for you through his son, empowered by his spirit, is the abundant life. It is a life pleasing to God. God's will for you is to be sanctified. That's exactly why he looked on his own son at his baptism and said, this is my son whom I am well pleased And he looks at us and says, yes, I am well pleased with you and engage in this life that is pleasing to me. Living in God's righteousness pleases the God who redeemed you and who purchased you and who set you apart for his good purposes. And to to gain this perspective, you need to continually dwell on God, gaze upon the cross. With the help of the Spirit, you will begin to desire God's will for your life to be holy. And so on the back end of our sermon, Paul gets specific with this church because there was a a, a certain thing that was happening in in this Greek city that was kind of plaguing their church, and it was sexual immorality. So for them, their kind of focus on this being set apart for God's will was that they should avoid sexual immorality. Verse four, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God. 
And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Verse 4, okay, that each of you should learn to control his own body. Part of this process of living a life pleasing to him, it does not come like that. And Paul knows that. That's what he says. You guys have to learn this. You have to learn. There's a, the learning kind of word means there's a process. We're always a process. Anybody, anybody a process in this room this morning, right? We're all a process. We're all learning still. We're all learning. A process communicates grace because we are, we're kind of allowed to wrestle with this, right? Um, and, and we're given grace when we stumble and we're allowed to wrestle with it in order that we may continually grow in this, right? As we wrestle with sin, we as a church community, we walk alongside each other. And through um, this process, we remain with each other. This is that grace and truth paradox, right? Because a process does not mean, you know, that we don't rebuke one another if sin is present, right? Um, we, we must. If I know there is sin present in your life, it is my, my role to, to mention that. That is part of us all growing in this life, pleasing unto the Lord. But there's also grace after that rebuke to give him a bear hug and say, I've been there, I know. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. That's the grace and truth of Christ that is built into that process of, of, of learning, in this case, to control their body for holiness, right? That's very different than just saying, would you stop it? Right? Because that's not helpful. That's not helpful. So like we mentioned earlier, um, um, when it comes to the sin conversation, I guess I didn't mention that earlier. Um, there's something important to learn about sin in the community here, in this life that is pleasing unto God, that um, in verse uh, 6, it says, um, each of you should be learned to control his own body in the way that is holy and honorable. Verse 5, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Sin, as we engage in it, it doesn't just affect you, it affects those around you. And Paul is clear about that. In this matter, no one should wrong his brother because in this case, sexual immorality brings um, an error against those around you. If you engage with someone who is in the covenant of marriage that you know, isn't your covenant with that person and either they are in one or about to be in one or will one day be in one, that person doesn't belong to you. There's no covenant made, and you're, you are sinning against that individual. That's just one example that Paul surfaces here. He says, you know, you will do wrong to your brother or even take advantage of that person if you engage in acts of sexual immorality and, and you allow the passionate lust to control your body. He continues on. He says, the Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. Verse 7 as we kind of close here. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So we're going to close right here and focus on that last verse. He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Look at that word gives. You have to read scripture slowly and carefully. It doesn't say gave you his Holy Spirit. 
You might expect that if you know anything about salvation. We're given our spirit, the spirit of God from the moment we believe. But Paul does not say he who gave you the spirit. He says he who gives. And that tense is a present tense that means continual. He gives. He is giving. Right now, he is giving. And so all commentators agree when Paul says this after talking about this life pleasing unto him and addressing their sexual immorality and this this call to live a holy life set apart before God, he's trying to, in a way, encourage him. A little fear of God here, rightly so. You know, um, uh, you're, you're rejecting the very instruction of God, but be encouraged because he gives you his spirit right now for these things. He's here to help you, in other words. He's here to empower you to, to discover this life pleasing unto him. He did not call you to be impure. He called you to live a holy life, and he gives his spirit to help you. And so on the back end of our time today, I asked Joel to reserve a few worship songs, um, two of them. And so um, my prayer this morning, this week, has been that right now we talked about a lot of things this morning, and I pray that um, maybe the Lord has, has, has convicted you of, of, number, of numerous things, of sin. Maybe he's challenge you in your complacency. Maybe you don't know the last time that you had a true encounter with God where his holiness was just so powerfully just present in your mind. Maybe you don't remember the last time that just looking at the cross of Christ just like just surfaced a great joy and a great just even uh, pleasure to say, wow, the love of God in the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Maybe these things haven't been present in your life. And the call is for you to submit yourself to them, to say, Lord, please reveal yourself to me. I want to live a holy life. Show me your holiness, Lord. Pull me along this process of living this life pleasing unto you.